Hey, podcasters. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision could also lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to choice.crd.co. That's choice.crd.co. And I encourage you to speak up on your podcast as well. Take care and spread the word. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Podcast Pontifications with me, Evo Terra. The nation is on fire again. All 50 states are seeing protests, civil unrest. And a lot of people who look like me and sound like me are asking, why? I'm not asking that question. The question I'm asking is, what about me? Specifically, what can I do? And there's a lot of things I can do, but it has to start with this. I recognize and accept the fact that I am the beneficiary of institutionalized systemic racism in this country. I, as an almost 52-year-old white male, have benefited greatly from white supremacy that has been around us for at least 400 years. That's a reality. That's a fact. Like many, I will say, I wasn't raised to be a racist. I can't look at my family and point to a single family member and say, yep, that guy right there, he was the racist. Though I know they certainly existed, almost without question. You see, I was born in Oklahoma, and I was raised, at least in my teenaged years, in a very small town that had no black people in it. This tiny town happened to be the county seat, a county, at least in 1986, that was exclusively white. Why was that the case, you might ask? I don't ask why that's the case. I know why that's the case. And a lot of why that is the case has to do with institutionalized systemic racism and white supremacy. I was steeped in it during my teenage years, arguably the worst time to be exposed to that kind of behavior. I had friends whose fathers, it is rumored, were card-carrying members of the KKK. So stupid statements that would indicate that I am not impacted by any of the charged racial... It's dumb. It's not true. Clearly, 
Clearly that left a mark. Rarely a days go by that my brain decides to go all rogue on me and have, I'll admit it, racist thoughts. Again, I was steeped in this growing up, even though I didn't really face it at home. It was around me all the time, and it's around us all the time right now. If you look like me and you sound like me, you too are the benefactor of institutionalized systemic racism. You benefit from white supremacy. I understand that. I now own that for myself. There's a lot of things I can do. There are a lot of things I will do. But one thing I will do right now is play for you with the permission of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, the first episode of a podcast called Seeing White. Actually, it's the second season of their podcast, which is called Seen on Radio. I discovered these 12 episodes over the weekend and binged them. It's the only thing I listened to. It was that compelling. The episodes detailed for me all the things I had missed about the history of white supremacy and institutionalized systemic racism that I am a product of. Not that these truths were deeply hidden. They weren't. I just didn't go looking for them. Chances are you haven't gone looking for them. This podcast series will help you understand that better. There is a link to the podcast page in the episode details. I highly encourage you to click through and to listen to all 12 episodes. But I am including, at the end of this, the entire first episode to give you a taste. And I strongly suggest you go through and listen to the rest of it. It is that important. Because if you look like me, and you sound like me, then you too are the product of white supremacy and institutionalized systemic racism. Listening won't fix it, but it's a start. Let's start. I'm minding my own business one day, looking in on my Facebook feed. It's the summer of 2016, in the frenzy of the campaign season, a few weeks after Donald J. Trump got enough delegates to clinch the Republican nomination. Someone's posted a video clip from the daytime talk show The View. The headline is about the comedian and actor D.L. Hughley and something he said on the show. It snags my interest and I click. Already. I mean, we often talk about, you know, the, what's going on with Donald Trump. Did you ever think he, he would even get this far? No, but I think I'm not shocked that he is. You're not? Why? No, I mean, because I think that ultimately America's aspirational. Like, to me, uh, Obama is what we would like to be. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Donald Trump and his supporters are what we are. Hey. They are what you we right? are. Wait, wait. Listen, we, we want to be different. Like you, We'll put Harriet Tubman on the front of a $20 bill, uh -huh. but leave Andrew Jackson on the back. So we have a slave on the front and a slave owner on the back. So even when black people are on money, we still got a supervisor. So, uh... <laughs>
The last bit is funny, but it was the part before that that stopped me in my tracks. This bit. Obama is what we would like to be. Right. Uh, Donald Trump and his supporters are what we are. Hey. I have to admit, my reaction at the time was, hold on a second. First of all, Obama won the whole shebang. Twice. Trump's going to be the nominee for one party, but the whole country hasn't elected him to anything yet, and it won't happen. You may remember that's what most people thought at the time. Besides that, I bristled at Hughley's we. I know it's we the people and all that, but when you put it in a sentence like this... Donald Trump and his supporters are what we are. Wasn't sure I wanted to be implicated in that we. Of course, Trump did win. Say what you like about the perfect series of gusts that blew him across the finish line. Hillary's emails, Vladimir Putin, James Comey, Jill Stein's voters, the Electoral College. Trump won. And as for that we, it seems fair to say that D.L. Hughley, who's black, was talking about a nation for all its growing diversity, a nation still dominated by people who look not like him, but like me. 70% of voters were white in 2016, and 58% of white voters chose Trump. Thus, the Van Jones election night comment that went viral. This was a white lash. This was a white lash against a changing country. It was a white lash against a black president, in part. And that's the part where the pain comes. People can debate how big a factor straight-up racism was in Trump's victory, but his year-long drumbeat of remarks and tweets and retweets, giving voice to white resentment toward people of color and religious minorities, offending millions and pulling scabs off old American wounds, all of that was not too much for the 62,984,825 people who colored in the bubble next to Trump's name. The rise of Trump is just one of the many things in the last few years that have turned a newly challenging, just what is up with you all, spotlight on white people and whiteness. Do I need to list them? From the many police shootings of unarmed black people to the massacre of nine black churchgoers by the white supremacist terrorist Dylan Roof, to cultural stuff like Oscars So White. Well, I'm here at the Academy Awards, uh, otherwise known as the uh, White People's Choice Awards. And what feels like a relentless drip, drip, month by month of glimpses into the everyday of American life. Moments not meant for public consumption, but captured on smartphones and sent ricocheting around the internet the manhandling of black teenage girls by white cops and school cops, those college kids in Oklahoma. Fraternity brothers seen on video engaging in a racist chant. And tonight they're I don't never be a nigger, I Or this one in the town where I live, Durham, North Carolina. After a near accident on a busy road, a man with brown skin stops his car to apologize and records the fury of a middle-aged white woman in a nice late-model sedan. Calm down, ma'am. Ma'am, ma'am, please relax. It's not necessary. Relax? Relax, I'm sorry. I did not see you. Just relax. Well, you better open up your goddamn eyes and learn how to drive, you fucking Muslim. You are a Muslim, aren't you? Yes, ma'am, proud. Uh, goddamn you, it. 
Son of a nigger loving atheist bitch. Get I feel off sorry of me. for you that you're full of hatred. Why are you so I'm full of hatred? I'm John Bewin. It's Seen on Radio. The race beat in American journalism usually involves pointing our gaze and our cameras and microphones at people of color. That goes for me, too. Over several decades as a reporter and documentary maker, I've told the stories of black folk from Chicago to the Mississippi Delta, Latinos from North Carolina to the apple orchards of Washington State, Native Americans from the Navajo Nation in the Southwest, to Ojibwe country up north. I'm proud of a lot of that work, but if I think about how I built those stories, I've often treated whiteness like the proverbial elephant in the room. You might hear about some white individuals or white-run institutions, the alleged bad apples, the discriminators. But like most American reporters, I've usually left white people as a group, the white race, unnamed. In the coming batch of episodes, a series we call Seeing White, turning the lens around, looking straight at white America and at the notion of whiteness itself. Where did this idea of a white race come from? God? Nature? Or is it man-made? And if somebody manufactured the idea, why? For what purpose? How has the meaning of white changed over the centuries, and how does it function now? The stories that we carry around about whiteness and what it means, stories we may not even know we're carrying, but we are, all of us, are those stories true? For the record, I am white. (laughs) I'm about the whitest boy you're ever going to meet. Stephen Colbert talking to his show's band leader, John Batiste. John, have you met anybody whiter than me? Yeah, I I, I think I know somebody. Yeah? Who? Who? It's a guy I grew up with. What's his name? You can say his name. What's his name? Oh, his name's Andy. Oh, I know Andy. You know Andy? Yeah, the white guy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we meet, we, we meet at the white meeting. Yeah, I know Andy. So I just want to say I'm at least as white as Colbert. Even my hair, which used to be the color of his, was in a hurry to turn white. So that means I'm well positioned for this project. I've got the credentials, the inside scoop on the whole white thing. Right? Hello. Hey, Chenjirai Kumanika? Yeah, who's this? John B. Wen. Hey, John, what's going on, man? How you doing? How you doing? I'm, I'm all right. You? I'm good, man. You know, one day at a time. So, I'm doing this... Uh, this crazy project looking at whiteness mm. and uh, I'm just not sure I'm up I'm, I'm not sure I'm the right person for the job I'm a little concerned about my perspective as a white dude and thinking I might I maybe could use some backup somebody to kind of check me a little bit and bring in you know help flesh out the story with the perspective uh, your perspective as a person of color in this world what do you think right you're not asking me to speak for all people of color, are you? Yes, of course. Okay, good, because, <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. So, <laughs> all right. Hey, my name is Chenjirai Kumanika. I'm a professor of critical cultural media studies, cultural industries, and things like that. Currently, I teach at Clemson University in the Department of Communication. In the fall of 2017, I'll be starting in Rutgers School of Inf- uh, Communication and Information. 
And, uh, yeah. So Chenjerai will make regular appearances in this series. People who study this stuff often say that white people ourselves are not very good at seeing whiteness. On the contrary, we tend to have blind spots, large and small, about the way it all works. Oh, and actually, Chenjerai won't have to speak for all people of color, because as you'll see, quite a few POCs will show up in the episodes. He can just speak for his smart and thoughtful self. For this introduction, Chenjerai and I put some thoughts and worries on the table about the series itself. I like the focus on whiteness because I feel like, in general, when we're talking about race and ethnicity, the focus tends to be on, you know, people of color and, uh, you know, whiteness just kind of is invisible. And so I like that. But, you know, there's like a couple of things I'm concerned about. Like when you say it right off the gate, there's a couple of things that just come up like, oh, I hope we don't go in this direction. Right. Tell me. Well, this is the I'll tell you, the big thing is this. There's a tendency in this country to frame the discussion about race and ethnicity and oppression in terms of something called race relations, <laughs> you know, and this this overwhelmingly focuses on the individual attitudes, you know, of people almost like race. Racism is like this disease and the and the overwhelming puzzle to solve is like who has it. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's that's how we think about it, isn't it? And how are people how are we getting along sort of are we nice to each right. other or not? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, how are we getting along? That's that's that seems to be like I mean, it's incredible to be how many like really intelligent people will still frame this issue like that. I've seen Obama do it, you know, and I think the thing that these conversations really need is something that people are deeply illiterate with is this issue of structural racism where institutionalized patterns of exploitation and oppression that are that are like racialized in certain ways, you know, and really just a more complex engagement with how power works and what race and ethnicity has to do with it. You know, this is to me almost distinct from this problem of it's not distinct, I guess, but almost distinct from race relations or prejudice. And so I, I really have a problem with people framing like that. In fact, John, if I can, I want to deputize you as a white person to go out into the world and like sort of intervene when you see people f- framing it like that. You know what mm. I mean? But yes, I hear you. Power, how does power work? How, does, how, how do systems, uh, and, and there's an idea that people have talked about that you can have you can have racism without individual racists because systems and structures have been set up in a way that they sort of run this way on their own at this point. Right. Or at least that's, that's that's right. That's a thesis to be looked at. Right. I mean, I, I mean, I think, and in a way that's like more worrisome in a way, right. It's like not just when you have like the person who we all know is a bigot, but actually, when you can have a system where people are not, they don't have those attitudes, but somehow they can be incentivized to participate in a in a system of oppression. That's that's what I'm more worried about, you know. Yeah, I have a worry too, uh, and a, and a disclaimer that I would want to make about about this project, and that is I'm concerned that people will look at the title of the series, "Seeing White," and they'll think, "Oh, this is this is a series about." Uh, 
white supremacists and neo-Nazis and the KKK again. Oh, yeah. Oh, for, yeah. And yes. I want people to know that that's not, that's not what we're up to here. Uh, please, please, <laughs> do, yeah. Those folks, right? those folks have had, have, have, are having their moment, but uh, it's not going to be on this show. Um, right. I mean, yes. who knows? There might be, you know, there'd be some overt racism that gets referred to and so on. But mostly what we want to talk about is, uh, you know, the rest of us um, who are not overtly stated white supremacists and, and sort of how, how things go down among the rest of us. Yeah, I'm 100% in support of that. I mean, I just think like, you know, it's hard because there is it is appalling when you see some of these crazy examples of bigotry and now people coming into explicit white supremacy and you know white nationalism and things like that but but the thing i'm much more interested in is the kind of whiteness that's just institutionalized it's there you know it just structures everyday well here i go everyday interactions but also uh, every you know just patterns and how institutions are set up and all these other kinds of things right who has what rights how resources are distributed those things are just in, just sort of ingrained they're just with us there invisibly like the water that we're in and that's what I'm more interested in that's our challenge to go on this journey together and see if we can get a little better at seeing the water Next time, we'll get into it by going back in time. Quite a ways back, back to the days when, though there were people who looked like me, there's no sign they thought of themselves as white. There was no notion of race. <laughs> people could look at other people and see some people were lighter and some people were darker, but what did that mean? What did that mean? The invention of a tribe, next time. The editor of our Seeing White series is Loretta Williams. You can follow Seen on Radio on Facebook and Twitter. The website is seenonradio.org. By all means, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and give us a rating and review so that little algorithm kicks in and iTunes puts the show in front of more eyeballs. Music on this episode by Lucas Bewin and his old man. The show comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. Sometimes it's like, I notice when you're talking to white people and you say the word white, it's almost like you just stab them a little bit every time you say it. I mean, but you don't have to be saying something crazy. Like you could just be saying a white person ate his cereal. It's like a white person hugged his mother. It's like, it just, each time it's like, it's, you just see them like, you know, kind of flinch. flinch a little bit. So <laughs> I don't like, what is that? Yeah. I just flinched twice when you said that, when <laughs> you said that word. <laughs> so, sorry. I'm sorry. From PRX. While Americans overwhelmingly support the right of an individual to make their own decisions about abortion, unfortunately, that right is no longer protected everywhere in the U.S. The Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade on June 24th. Abortion is a basic healthcare need for the millions of people who can become pregnant. 
Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. Even if you live in a state where abortion rights are upheld, access to safe medical procedures shouldn't be determined by location, and it shouldn't be the privilege of a small few. You can help by donating to local abortion funds. To find out where to donate for each state, visit donations4abortion.com. That's donations, the number four, abortion.com. If you or someone you know needs help, or if you want to get more involved, here are five resources. One, Shout Your Abortion is a campaign to normalize abortion. Two, Don't Ban Equality is a campaign for companies to take a stand against abortion restrictions. Three, Abortion.Cafe has information about where to find clinics. Four, PlanCPills.org provides early at-home abortion pills that you can keep in your medicine cabinet. And five, choice.crd.co has a collection of these resources and more. We encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word.